0: All right, so here we are, and we are continuing the series that we began last week, our new study here in Ephesians, and just doing a couple of preliminary messages, and next week we'll go ahead and jump into the text itself, but you can certainly turn to Ephesians this morning if you haven't done that already, and uh, we're going to take sort of a uh, an overview of the the epistle today. Uh, many years ago, a Bible teacher named Ruth Paxson wrote a commentary on Ephesians that she entitled The Wealth, Walk, and Warfare of the Christian. Uh, so I have shamelessly stolen that um, from her. And we're using that as our theme. I don't think she would mind. She's, of course, in heaven, and uh, she'd probably be honored because it, it was such a good uh, breakdown. It really is a good big-picture description of the epistle's contents. And, and as you break it down, chapters 1 through 3, they tell us about the wealth that we have as God's people. Chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 9, talk about our walk, our, our lifestyle as God's people. And then uh, verse six, uh, or chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 10 on through most of the rest of the chapter, gives us insight, vital and important insight, into the subject of spiritual warfare. So today... I want to do what you might call a flyover of Ephesians and take a general look at each of these themes, uh, beginning with uh, chapters one through three, where Paul tells us of our wealth in Christ. But before we jump into that, what I want to point out to you that's important to realize is that the biblical method of putting forth divine revelation is to always start with God, who he is and what he's done. And that's exactly what the apostle does here in Ephesians. And he does that in most of his epistles, as a matter of fact. But, but in the bigger picture of the Bible itself, this is, the, the Bible is first and foremost, it's about God. And so as we study the Bible, this is what we find. We find that we come first to God, to who he is, to what he's done. And then after we have been established in that, Then we come to um, our responsibility. And the reason I even bring this up is because, uh, unfortunately, quite often uh, it's the reverse. Quite often you find that the the big emphasis is on man and on the the duty of man. So, you know, many times you you hear sermons that are uh, mainly about you know, what you should be doing for God as a Christian. If you're a good Christian, the, these are the kinds of things that you're gonna be doing. These are the kind of things that you're gonna be involved in. Of course, there, there's a place to talk about that. We do have a responsibility. But our uh, our duty, if you will, are, are the, when are the things that pertain to our behavior, according to the scripture, and if we look at it properly, these things all flow forth from the grace of God and the goodness of God that we are the recipients of. So what the, the way the Bible presents it, everything we do is a response to God's goodness. So you see, it's important that I get established, first of all, in the goodness of God, the grace of God, in his love for me, in all that he is and he's done, As I come to know that, as I learn that, then the whole thing about walking becomes quite natural at that point. Of course, this is the way I'm going to walk because after all, look at all that God has done for me. And that's the way Paul lays it out. The first three chapters of this epistle, they are just nothing but... A, a declaration of the riches that we have in Christ and all of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. In the first three chapters, we're never told to do anything. In a sense, we're, our, our, you know, what we're really called to do is to just sit and be saturated in these great truths. Another uh, commentary on Ephesians was broken down this way, uh, sit, walk, and stand. That's a good breakdown, too, because that's kind of what it's like. First of all, we're sitting. We're, we're seated, it says here in chapter one, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. So here we are, we're to sit and just soak in the goodness of God and to get to understand his blessings, his love for us, his grace. And as we get ourselves, you know, just completely saturated in that, then when it comes time to now walk this way, it's like, well, of course, we're going to walk this way. Absolutely, because of all that God's done for us. So that's the biblical method. And that's Paul's method that he employs. And that's what we see so clearly here in Ephesians. So beginning with the first three chapters, Paul starts it off by telling us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this is where it all begins. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. There's not a single thing that God has withheld from us when it comes to spiritual blessings. There's nothing that we could need that God hasn't already made available to us in Christ. So everything that we need is there. So you see, it is it is, uh, it's not just possible, it, it is the way it should be, that we, we should all enter into the fullness of what God has because he's made a way for that to happen with all of the spiritual blessings that he has extended toward us. We are, uh, the whole point that he's making here in these chapters is, is our, our, uh, our wealth that we have in Christ. Our wealth is incalculable. It, it's just beyond measure and it's, it's these spiritual blessings. Now, he goes on and he begins to then list these blessings. And I'm just, I'm just gonna touch on them lightly today. We're gonna go into great detail on many of these. But the first thing he says in regard to spiritual blessings is we've been chosen, chosen by him, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, think about that for a second. God chose you to be his child. He, he picked you. He didn't have to, but he did. And he picked you with full knowledge of who you are, where you've been, what you've done, all of those things. He knows all of that. And he chose you anyway. That to me is so encouraging. You know, it's not like we're ever going to surprise God. It's not like there's going to come a point where he's going to say, you know, you know, I I thought I was getting a better deal. And now I realize that, you know, man, this person just a loser. I got to, I got to get rid of this one. You know, God doesn't do that. He knows everything about us from the very beginning, but he chose us. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. That's amazing because we're not holy and we're not blameless, but he's actually made a way for that to happen. So Paul tells us that we've been chosen. Then he says that we've been predestined. And, and being chosen and predestined are similar, but they're slightly different. And we'll talk in detail about predestination in the, the days ahead. But we've been predestined to adoption as sons or as sons and daughters, children by Jesus Christ to himself. So, remember, too, all of this happened before the foundation of the world. You know, you are here today. If you're in a relationship with Christ today, you are here um, because God chose you before you were ever born. He chose you before he ever created the world, he ever brought the universe into existence. We were there in his heart and in his mind, and he brought you into the world, and now he's brought you to this place. You were predestined to be adopted to him through Jesus Christ. He then goes on and tells us that we are redeemed. We are redeemed. We've been, the the picture of redemption is we've been purchased out of the slave market. We've been purchased out of bondage to sin, and we've been um, purchased out of slavery and brought into uh, God's family, really. That's the picture. We haven't simply been purchased and then uh, let go to just kind of go and become anything or nothing, but we've, we've been purchased and brought into the relationship. That's what redemption implies. And then he says that there's forgiveness. And so we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven. You know, everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed through Christ, you've been forgiven of every single sin. There's nothing that you have ever done that God didn't forgive in Christ. And those things that so often plague us and haunt us and follow us throughout life, condemning us and causing us to doubt whether God could really love us or accept us. Those things are all gone. God's removed them. The scripture in the Psalms tells us as far as the east is from the west. God has removed those things from us. He's taken our sins, according to Micah, and he's cast them into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. Do you know today that you're forgiven? God's forgiven you. Maybe you're struggling with forgiving yourself. Sometimes that can happen. Um, you gotta work through that, but know this. God's forgiven you. That's what we have. That's part of the rich uh, spiritual blessing that we have. So we've been forgiven. But then Paul goes and he tells us that we've been accepted. We've been accepted in the beloved. God accepts you. You know, acceptance is it's such a, you know, it's such a desirable thing, isn't it? We want to be accepted. I mean, who wants to be rejected? You know, that's rejection is a a hard thing for us, Right. And, you know, it, to some degree, it depends on who rejects you. I mean, you know, I would imagine with some people, you don't care. Well, they reject me. Who cares? I don't, I don't like them anyway. <laughs> That's how I feel about certain people. <laughs> but, you know, there are other people you, you're very much concerned as to whether they accept you or reject you, right? And if you were to be rejected, this would be very, very painful, But listen, here's the wonderful news. You're accepted by God. Everybody to be accepted by, this is the most important person. We're accepted by God. We're accepted in the beloved. You see, as Paul says, we're in Christ. And then he says we're accepted in the beloved. And listen, God, his acceptance of you today is just like his acceptance of Jesus Christ. Does God accept Jesus? Of course he does. God said, concerning Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Guess what? He looks at you and he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You think, well, how could that be? I know myself. You're accepted in the beloved. You see, when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. And here's something that's absolutely amazing. Did you know that the moment you received Jesus as your savior, you became as righteous as you could ever be. You can never, ever become more righteous. You are perfectly righteous because you've received the righteousness of Christ. Now, that's the way it is from God's point of view. And we call that positional righteousness. It's important that we understand that there are distinctions, there are these nuanced distinctions uh, theologically that we need to understand. And if we don't get this, it will negatively affect us in our walk with the Lord. We need to understand that we are positionally as righteous as we could ever be. It can never be improved on. It's the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's how you are positionally. Now, practically, it's a different story, isn't it? See, God looks at us and he sees us perfect. Can't be improved. It's the perfect righteousness. We look at each other and we think, wait a second. That's, that doesn't look like perfect righteousness to me. We can see all kinds of fa- flaws and faults in one another, right? We look in the mirror. We can see all kinds of flaws and faults in ourselves. But you see, that's the difference. There's the positional righteousness and there's the practical righteousness, and thank God our practical righteousness does not affect our positional righteousness. You know, if you have an unrighteous day, it doesn't mean that you're then unrighteous before God, thank God. If it did, we would be in a lot of trouble. We would be going to heaven one minute and hell the next and back and forth all day long and all week long. And and then who knows, you know, if you just suddenly, your heart stopped all of a sudden, you'd be like, where am I going? You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have any... You wouldn't be able to have any assurance. Our assurance is based not on our ability, but on what Christ did. So we are accepted in the beloved. That's one of the the riches that we have. And then he goes on, all of this is in the first chapter. Then he goes on and he tells us finally that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed. God has placed his seal upon us. And what that signifies is ownership. God places his seal on you and says, you belong to me, you're mine, I own you. And Paul uses uh, images that the people would be familiar with in his time. And this would be an image from uh, the Roman government would put its seal or a a wealthy person would put their seal on uh, a purchased possession. And, And that seal would signify ownership. And it would also signify protection. Especially if it was the seal of the Roman government. Something the the, you know, Rome purchases something, puts their seal on it, that means it belongs to them, don't touch it uh, under the threat of death. And so Paul takes this imagery and he transfers it over to us, and he says that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, God's marked us with his seal, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that God is going to get us to heaven. That's the redemption of the purchased possession when we get to heaven. But in the meantime, we have been sealed. And that's the guarantee. That's our guarantee that God's going to get us to where he would have us to be. So from there, Paul moves on as we go into the second chapter. And he tells us some more wonderful things. He shares with us more of our wealth in Christ. He tells us that although we were previously dead in trespasses and sins, we've been made alive together in Christ. We've been made alive. We've been brought to life. That's what's happened to us. We were formerly dead We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead to the reality of of God's presence. We were dead to uh, any ability to hear his voice. We were incapable of pleasing him. But then God made us alive. He brought us to life through Christ. We've been made alive in Christ. And he then says that we have become citizens of heaven made alive in Christ, and now made citizens of heaven. You see, as God's people, we have a dual citizenship. We are, of course, citizens of earth, but our primary citizenship is in heaven. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he reminded them of that. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from heaven that we await the the appearing of our Savior, who's gonna take and he's going to transform these feeble bodies, and he's going to make them like to his glorious body. So we have dual citizenship. I know many people who have dual citizenship. They're maybe uh, U.S. citizens was their primary citizenship, and then they've been living abroad for years, and they qualify, and they, they get citizenship in other countries. But their primary citizenship is, is the United States, And so with us, we do have citizenship on earth, but this is the foreign land. Our our country of origin, our true uh, citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. So we've been uh, made citizens. And then he says that we've become members of the household of God. Now, Paul is writing the audience in Ephesus this Um, this group of believers, this growing group of believers, uh, is predominantly a Gentile congregation. So Gentiles are those outside of the Jewish nation and the Jewish covenant. And of course, what happened is God chose Abraham, all of the people after the time of the flood, Uh, it didn't take long for people to uh, turn their back on God again and refuse to follow him and seek him. And so at a certain point, God just sort of lets the Gentile nations go their way, even though he continues to provide the, you know, seasons for crops to grow and, you know, rain and sun and all those things. He says, you know, his, um, his mercies are over all of his works, like we read. And although he continued to do that for the population in general, he narrows things down and he starts working with this one family, which would become a nation, the nation of Israel. But then everybody else is outside of that. They're not part of the covenant. And so Paul's writing to people who have not been part of this covenant, but he says to them, you are now members of the household of God. But he describes their their previous condition as without hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. We were without hope. We were without God. But we've been made now members of the family we've been brought into the family. And that is such a wonderful thing to know that we are now members of God's household. When we read the Bible and we read about, uh, you know, the history of the children of Israel, or we go back further and we read about the patriarchs and these people, you know what? Those are our relatives. Those are our family members. We're connected with them. And, you know, the more you get into your Bible and become familiar with it, you'll find as time goes on, you start to, you you really start to sense that, you know, you're reading about your family members, you're reading your, um, about your, um, ancestors and and you connect with them and you, you feel that connection. I was at a memorial service yesterday for a young man, 21 years old, the son of a pastor, died in a car accident last week. Precious kid, amazing kid. And, you know, as we sat there through the service, um, they had a beautiful uh, video presentation of his life and, you know, watching him as a little boy. And he loved the Bible stories and he liked to dress up like Bible characters and superheroes and all of that. And uh, it was so sweet. And then at one point, one of the persons who was giving the eulogy uh, they just happened to mention that, you know, of course he's in heaven. He trusted in Jesus, and they said, and you know, I'm sure he's he's connecting with those heroes, David and Samson, and you know, the different people that, as a young kid, you know, he really um, he identified with them. And as as he said that, I thought, you know, that's probably just exactly what's happening right now, because that's a reality members of God's family, members of God's household, we've been brought in. So all of these things, this is part of the wealth that uh, the apostle says. And then he comes to the climactic uh, conclusion of this first section on the wealth of the Christian. And this is how he closes it out. He tells us that we are loved with a love that transcends knowledge. We are loved. We We are more loved than we can ever imagine. Did you know that? You are more loved than your mind could ever comprehend. How is it that we think so little of the love of God? How is it that we could think of God's love as being so small sometimes? We think of it so small as to, uh, you know, it probably didn't survive this, this moment of sin or weakness that I had. No, it survives it. I love that passage in, I think it's Ecclesiastes, where it says, love is stronger than death. And man, again, how how much does God love us? Well, he loved us enough to send his most beloved son to die for us. So it's a love that transcends knowledge. It's a love that we can't even comprehend. You ever been loved by somebody? Deeply loved by somebody? Well, think of this. The deepest love you could ever experience on a human level has no comparison to the love that God has for us it's a love that transcends knowledge. And and because it's a love that transcends knowledge, Paul finalizes everything by saying that this God who loves us with a knowledge that we can't comprehend is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ever ask or even imagine. Isn't that amazing? God can do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or ever imagine. And that's how Paul sort of brings the the wealth section of the epistle to a conclusion. But as I said, this is the first three chapters. So listen, for quite a while in the days ahead, we're gonna be just basking in the goodness of God. We're gonna be basking in the love of God. And we are gonna find out more and more about what these things mean and the details of them. And we just sort of skimmed these three chapters. There's much that was left out, we couldn't go into detail even on the things that we spoke of. So we're going to sit and soak in the riches that we have in Christ. And so when we come to the next section that deals with our walk, it's going to be so obvious that, of course, this is how we walk because of what God has done for us. And as we're growing in our understanding Of this immense wealth in Christ, that will be the impetus for us to walk worthy of the calling. And that's where Paul begins the walk section. He says, walk therefore worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now the word walk is, um, it's a synonym for a lifestyle. So our lifestyle is to be a lifestyle that is worthy of the calling. You know, in uh, royal families, in, in monarchies, Uh, Depending on the time in history, and of course, there have been plenty of uh, evil monarchies, but you know, when you have a a fairly decent monarchy, there's always this um, expectation uh, for the family, the royal family. There's an expectation for them to behave a certain way. There's something that is becoming of royalty, and there are things that are unbecoming. So, you know, kids are brought up and they're given all of the proper training to speak properly, and they're taught proper etiquette and they're educated classically and, you know, all of these different things. So they will stand out as, wow, this is part of the royal family. And then when it, occasionally the royal family is not behaving so well and it, it's out in the papers that Prince so-and-so did this or that and, you know, Princess what's her name? She, oh boy, she's in all kinds of trouble. Uh, people don't expect that. It's like, wait, that's the royal family. They're supposed to behave better than that. Well, listen, we're the royal family. We're God's family. So people have an expectation that we would behave in a certain way. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. We call ourselves the children of God, then we ought to behave like that. We say that we are sons and daughters of God, well, then we ought to have similar uh, traits to our heavenly father. That's what Paul is saying. So we're to walk worthy of the calling. And then in contrast, he says, no longer walking as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So that's how he describes the way the the Gentiles walk, the unbelievers. They walk in the futility of their mind. In other words, they're uh, the guiding principle in their life is, originates in their own mind, their own corrupted mind. So in other words, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Every man then individually becomes the, the one to determine uh, what the right or wrong course is. It's relativism. It's just, you know, you have an opinion about what's right and that's right for you. Now, this other person has a different opinion and that's right for them. And uh, that's the way the Gentiles walked in Paul's day. And that's the way the unbelievers conduct themselves today. And of course, this is the way we all lived before we came to know Christ and submit ourselves to the authority of his word, right? We just did what we thought was right. When I meet people today and they say, things, you know, that now to me sound outlandish, you know, like they, the certain things that they think are right or they don't have a problem with. You know, one thing that is helpful is for me that I used to be there, so I get it. Yeah, I, I know why you think like that, because I used to think like that too. Hey, you know, live and let live, doesn't bother me, didn't hurt me, go ahead, do what you want. That's living according to the futility of the mind. The mind becomes the final authority, But we know that there's an authority that transcends that. It's God's mind. It's God's heart. And that's revealed in God's word. And so we're not to walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of our minds. But we are to walk according to God's word. Paul would go on to say that we're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of light. We're to walk circumspectly. We're to be wise and not foolish. Those are all of the things that he will Challenge us with as we go through that portion of the scripture. You know, the amazing thing, and for many of you, you would already know this, but you know, we hear so often about how the Bible is outdated, old fashioned, out of touch, it can't be depended on because, you know, it's archaic and, um, you know, we know today that, you know, things are different and and so forth. And you hear people say that. And, you know, every time I hear somebody say that, you know what I know? First of all, I know they have never really read the Bible. Because, you know, when you read the Bible, that is not the impression you get. When you read the Bible, the impression you get is like, wow, this book is very contemporary. This book is kind of describing the stuff that (laughs) I'm living in. This book is describing everything that I see going on around me. This book is describing the culture as we're experiencing it today. And and in these chapters, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, verse 9, Paul is going to give a description as he's instructing us on how to live and how not to live. He's going to be giving a description of the way people were living and showing us, no, this is not the way. And you know what? You're going to find it's like, wow, this is the way we live today. This is the way that I've been living. So it's very current. There's nothing outdated about the scriptures at all. They are very, very relevant because man is essentially the same from generation to generation. Our changes are surface changes, but in our hearts we're the same and we have the same problems and the same issues that just repeat themselves over and over again in the cycle of history. So all of this, walking in love, walking as children of light, walking circumspectly, making sure we were aware of the times and in relation to the kingdom of God and so forth. Those are the things that we're told in the the portion of walking. But then he comes to the final section. And this is where Paul speaks of something that the Bible talks about, but it's here in Ephesians 6 that there's more, in some ways, there's more information given than in any other portion of Scripture. Or or more instruction is probably uh, the better way to put it. But it's on the subject of warfare. Warfare. You say, well, what is warfare? Well, we're talking about spiritual warfare. And Paul spells it out in the sixth chapter. He says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against a host of wicked spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God. So it's here in this epistle that we're going to learn about this very important subject of spiritual warfare. You see, because the world is not what it appears to be. We only see the material uh, aspect, but there's a spiritual world that coexists within our material world. And to a large degree, the world that we live in is controlled by invisible forces. That's the truth. That's the biblical picture of reality. Now, when it comes to the devil, that's what we're talking about here. When it comes to the devil, oftentimes in the church, you have, you have two extremes and you, you very rarely find the balance. And the extremes are you've got one group that pretty much just dismissed the idea of the devil. Uh, some more, more liberal would say, well, you know, that's just pure superstition. Uh, the early Christians lived in a a culture where they thought there were demons and stuff, so the apostles sort of accommodated them, Uh, but these things aren't, you know, they're not a reality, and so you don't have to pay any attention to this. That's, That's kind of a, you know, more liberal position. There are people that are more conservative theologically who wouldn't say that, but on a practical level, it would pretty much be about the same because they just would say, well, you know, yeah, there's a devil, but he doesn't really do anything we'll never have an encounter with him. We will never be bothered by him. He, he kind of does other things, whatever they are. Uh, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is that the devil uh, is the one who is, um, he's doing everything. And the devil made me do it and the devil caused this and the devil caused that. And, um, you know, uh, just that obsessive kind of a thing where just seeing a demon, you know, behind every tree and under every rock. And, um, you know, there's more in these cases, there's more emphasis and focus on, on Satan and demons than there is on God and the spirit of God. So these are two extremes. The Bible of course gives us the perfect balance. There is a devil. He's real. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The battle that we're in is really not against our fellow human beings primarily. It's against the forces of darkness behind the scenes that are, that are quite often controlling people's lives. And since the battle is really a spiritual battle, we have got to be equipped with spiritual weapons. And so, put on the full armor of God. And here, Paul gives us detailed instruction on the armor of God, the various pieces of the armor of God, and we're exhorted to put on that armor that we can both withstand and also stand on the evil day. So this is the overview of this epistle. These are the things that we are going to be covering over the next several months in much more detail than we have today. And through doing this, I am Confident that God is going to greatly strengthen our faith. You see, I need to know these things. I need to know about the great riches I have in Christ. I need to know how to walk and please God. I need to understand that I'm in a spiritual battle. I remember as a young Christian, um, you know, I got saved. I was jumped in and just started following the Lord and serving the Lord and everything was great. And I was filled with joy and excitement and energy. And, and then suddenly something happened. I don't know what it was. It was just, you know, kind of a heaviness came on me and sort of a depression. And, and I just felt defeated. And I, I was wondering to myself, what happened? And one night I was having a conversation with a person who'd been a Christian uh, for a longer time than I had. And, and in the course of the conversation, the person mentioned spiritual warfare. And I said, well, what's that? And he told me, and I said, wow, that's, that's what I'm going through. I understood at that point. And just knowing that that's what was happening was tremendously beneficial in helping me you know, move toward a victory over the enemy. So these are all of the things that we're going to be focusing on. So as we close today, let me say this in closing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, You are the possessor of incalculable spiritual wealth. You are spiritually a multi-billionaire. Do you realize that? You know, there are, there have been, (laughs) there have been cases in history where people have been uh, heir to... uh, you know massive amounts of of wealth and so forth, but they for some reason they didn 't know about it or they they didn't access it or whatever and and those were always you know unfortunate and and you know somewhat tragic it 's like well this this person had all of this, but they never really understood it, and they never uh, appropriated it and We can be the same way so here 's what we need to know we need to know how rich we are, and then We need to take those riches and apply them to the things that God wants them to be applied to. So we are the possessors of inestimable wealth. You are also possessed, as a believer in Jesus Christ, of a new nature that calls for a new lifestyle. We're possessed of a new nature, through faith in Christ, we're born again. Remember, we're made alive. We were dead. We're born again. Now we have a new nature. And here's what happens. If you try to keep living the old lifestyle, you're going to find that there's a conflict. Wait, this doesn't feel right. This, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing this. What does that mean? That means that there's, there's a new nature there. And the new nature is, is crying out for new behavior, for a new lifestyle. Finally, because of your new status as a child of God, you are a threat to the powers of darkness and are therefore subject to spiritual attack and need, know how, need to know how to stand against the wiles of the devil. And these are the things that we'll learn in the weeks and in the months ahead. But that's a reality. Because you're a child of God, you become a target of the enemy. And you have to recognize that and you have to pre- prepare yourself for those assaults. You know, I don't want to get weird or, you know, <laughs> scary or any of that with, with this. And, and there's no, no need, no need to be. But you know, this is this is a real thing. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. And what you're going to discover is that you've you've engaged a lot more in it than you've ever realized because so many things that you have not understood or thought were maybe something else, you're going to find out in the course of time that, wow, that was a satanic attack. So, so this is, you know, this is something that's so important. So these three things, but let let me say this as well, because although I'm sure that most everyone in here is a believer, it's possible that there are some with us today, or at least I'm listening uh, on the internet or or the radio or whatever, that that maybe you're not in a right relationship with Christ. Maybe you've never been there, and maybe you were there, and you've drifted away from that. But here's the reality for those who are not believers in Jesus or not following Jesus. um, Far from being uh, spiritually rich beyond comprehension, you are spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing in your account. When God looks at your account, it, there, there's nothing there. You've got a massive debt and you've got nothing to pay it with. It's like uh, King Belshazzar back in Babylon. The day of, of reckoning came for him, and it was said by the Lord himself through the prophet Daniel You've been weighed in the balance and you have been found wanting. You've got nothing in your account, you're spiritually bankrupt. You're spiritually bankrupt. You're instead of instead of walking in the light, and instead of walking in love and, and those things, your your lifestyle is is as we talked about earlier. You you're walking um, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of your mind. It's all you know, well, I think this and I feel that and that's why I'm doing this. And, and But all of that's wrong and it's all leading in the wrong direction. It's leading ultimately to destruction. And then finally, if you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, you're not merely being attacked by the devil. You are the possession of the devil. The devil owns you. He holds you captive. The Bible says that that the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. And there's only one way to be released from that captivity, and that's by one greater than Satan. That's Jesus who overthrew the strong man, and he can divide the spoil and set you free. So as we close today, if you've not received Christ, or if maybe you did at a certain time in life, but you haven't walked with him and followed him, today's the day. Here's the opportunity for you to reconnect with him and to enter into these great riches and to become again, uh, or for the very first time, a recipient experientially of that transcendent love that God has, that great love that goes beyond our ability to understand. And you can start experiencing that great wealth and God will put you on a new course, change your lifestyle take you off the course of destruction and put you on the path of life and bless you. And he will become your shield and your protection. And the devil will no longer be able to hold you in his grasp, but God will put you in his hand and no one can snatch you from that. So take advantage of that opportunity today as it comes. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you are still speaking to people today that you're working in our lives, that you take your word and you change us from the inside out, that you deliver us from destruction and you put us on the path of righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the immense wealth that we have that we so often don't even realize or experience. And Lord, may we come to know and experience this riches in Christ in even greater ways than we've ever imagined in the days ahead. And Lord, may we walk worthy of the calling more so as time goes on. Lord, may we be strengthened in this great cosmic conflict, this spiritual battle. So for those who are yours today, bless and strengthen them through this knowledge. And Lord, for any today that don't yet know you or have drifted away from you. Lord, draw them back to yourself, and may they enter in and become partakers of these wonderful spiritual blessings. May they come and be part of your family, members of the household of God. And while our heads are bowed today, we're praying, if you're here with us, and you would say, you know, I I want to Put my faith in Jesus Christ. I want to experience these riches you're talking about. I want, I, I want to get off the path of destruction. I want to get on the path of life. I want, I want to get out from the grip of the devil. He's destroying my life. I want Jesus to be my savior. If there's anyone here that would say that today, I want you to slip your hand up right where you're at, and I want to just say a simple prayer for you. And you can leave this place, having met the God who created you and loves you, And he's gonna come in and make you new. He's gonna dwell in you. He's gonna give you an entirely new life and a new destination. That's heaven. Anybody else? Just slip your hand up. Several hands have been slipped up around the place. God bless you. You can put your hand down once you've raised it. That's great. Anyone else? Father, thank you for these that have raised their hand today, signifying their desire. And for those of you that raised your hand, just say this with me real simply. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner come in and forgive my sins. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And Lord, we pray for them now that you'd meet them powerfully by your spirit and you would do that great saving, transforming work in their lives. In your name we pray. Amen.